You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So let's uh, start this morning with a question. It goes like this. What kind of church do you want to be? What kind of church do y'all want to be? Now, the reason that I'm asking y'all the question is because y'all, as in we, as in all of us together, we are the ones who determine the answer. What makes a church the kind of church it is, is the people of that church. The pastors have a responsibility to teach the Bible and to shepherd and to lead, but ultimately it's the church together that forms and shapes the character of that church. And our passage today, the book of Galatians chapter 5, is all about this. Last week, Pastor David Mathis mentioned that at the beginning here of chapter 5, verse 1, Paul starts to focus on the church's life together. Paul moves from expounding the gospel in chapters 1 to 4 to now he's exhorting the church about how they should live together in light of that gospel. In verses 7 to 14 here, 7 to 15 in chapter 5, This is kind of like a fork in the road because a a dichotomy begins to emerge in this passage. We're going to see it next week as we continue in chapter 5. But the dichotomy begins to emerge here in this passage. And it's like Paul is saying to the church here in verses 7 to 15, hey, you can either be this kind of church or you can be that kind of church. It's like Paul is saying, hey, you can go down this road or you can go down that road, but either way, you're going to go down one road or the other, and who decides, Paul would say, is you. The church decides. It's who he's writing the letter to. Paul's not writing Galatians to a denomination. He's not writing this this book to pastors only, but Paul is writing this book to the whole church because the whole church decides. We together, as the church, we decide the kind of church we're going to be. And so let me just tell you the options, the two options, the two roads that Paul lays out for us here. Skip down for a second to verse 14 to 15. Now this is the conclusion of the passage, but I want to start here with the conclusion because I want us to get an idea right from the start, the two different roads that we're looking at. Now verse 14 continues what Paul said in verse 13, where he says, through love serve one another. Verse 14, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. But if, verse 15, you see that? That marks a contrast in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And so those are, the two, those are the two roads. You either love one another, verses 13 and 14, or you devour one another, verse 15, which connects back to verses 7 to 12. So you have either the road of strife or the road of love. Now, the, the, the road of love leads to flourishing, flourishing. The road of strife, though, leads to destruction. The road of strife, the road of love, flourishing, destruction. We need to figure out which road we're on, right? Which of these roads are we walking down? What I want to do in this, pas- in this, in this sermon is I want to slow down in this passage and describe more what these two roads are like. That's, that's, this is basically the sermon. There are two things we're looking at. First, what is this road of strife? Part one. 
And then part two, what is this road of love? What is the road of strife? What is the road of love? That's the plan. All right, let's pray. We'll get started. Father in heaven, you who are with us now by your spirit, we ask in this moment for for more of him. We, we, We ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us and that by his power, we ask that you show us the glory of your son. Show us the glory of Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. So part one is the question, what is the road of strife? And if we are looking slowly here, what's the road of strife? There are three things that we see. Three things in the passage that describe to us the road of strife. The first one we see in verse seven, and it's this. Number one, what is the road of strife? The road of strife starts with doctrinal compromise. Verse seven, Paul says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And so this is a metaphor here of a long-distance runner, one of, one of Paul's favorite metaphors. He uses this several times in his letters. And the image here is that the church is this runner. And the church has been, has been running down the right road in good shape. They're trucking along. They're keeping a good pace. But then somebody hinders them. And the word here for hindered is the same word that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 2.18 when he says that Satan hindered him. The word means to obstruct. The word means to just get in the way, to deter. That's what's been going on here. So to stick with the running metaphor, if you can use your imagination here, there's there's a runner, you got a runner in your mind, the runner's running along, the runner's doing great, making great pace. We have some runners in our church, right? Runners? Yeah, we got some runners, good. Okay, so you can imagine you're running. You're running here, you're making great pace, you're in good shape, the stride is right, everything's working, everything's going great, but then all of a sudden, somebody comes out of nowhere and they start running beside you. And they're running beside you, and what they start to do, they start jabbing elbows in your side as you're running. Now look, if that's me, like I'm just done, okay? I'm not a good runner, I can't imagine running and taking elbows in the side, so I'd, just, I'd be finished, okay, I'm done. But you're a good runner, Y'all are good runners. And so you continue to run and you continue taking these elbows in the, the side. But he, here's the thing. You, you take these elbows and, and, and you keep, you, you know, the direction you started down, the more elbows you take, you, you begin to actually change your direction. You're running this way, but these elbows keep nudging you. And the next thing you know, you're actually running a completely different direction than you thought. You're actually now on a completely different road than the one you first started down. That, that's what's happening here for the Galatians. They've been hindered. They were running well, but now they're off course. They've veered off course, and and this hindrance that has been elbowing them is a hindrance from obeying the truth. Now, when Paul says the word truth here, he means the truth of the gospel, just like he says in chapter 2, verses 5 and 14. Somebody is hindering this church from the gospel, and this somebody, verse 8, is not God. The church was running well. They were on the right track. But now all these elbows are taking their toll. And these elbows in the side are against the gospel of God. Which means, imagine now you're running and you keep taking these elbows. And the first elbow says, hey, faith in the gospel, faith in Jesus is not enough. Elbow. The second elbow says, hey, hey, you know, circumcision, keeping Jewish law, that actually is required for salvation. Elbow. 
The next syllabus is, hey, you know the Apostle Paul? He doesn't actually know what he's talking about. The next one says, hey, did God really say? See? And the problem is, as you're running and, and you take that first elbow, you know, it's, this is one elbow. But if you don't really resist that, you get a second elbow. And then that third elbow is going to land a little bit easier. And the next thing you know, you're just getting used to all these elbows in the side. And you end up being what Paul says in Ephesians. You're being tossed to and fro and carried about by every strange wind of doctrine. You end up on the road of strife. You end up headed toward destruction. And it all started by just giving a little bit of space to elbows in the side to giving just a little bit of space to teaching that contradicts the truth of the gospel. The result of one compromise, one elbow, will lead to a very different place from where you were meaning to go. And look, I know that when I talk this way, there are some who, who might roll their eyes about churches who are very serious about doctrine. I get that. I, I get that there are some who might ridicule churches who are concerned about slippery slopes. You know, oh, just relax. I, I get that. I get that that's out there. But I just want to say the importance of doctrine and the importance of being vigilant against false doctrine, that comes from the New Testament. All right? That's just what the Bible says. All right? And when it comes down to like, are we going to listen to what the Bible says? That's actually a question of whether or not we want to be a real church. Be because ch churches that forsake the Bible, churches that ignore what the Bible says, churches that abandon the truth of the gospel like the Galatians were on the verge of doing, they're not actually real churches anymore. Now they still might have a building for now, they, they still might meet together on Sundays, but if they've forsaken the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are not a real church. And for all so-called churches in the Twin Cities, I want to replace them with a church plant. That's what we're trying to do here, okay? God willing, that's what we're trying to do. That's part of the vision of our church as we want to plant more churches that are centered on the gospel and devoted to the teachings of scripture. When it comes to the road of strife, the first thing to know is that it starts with doctrinal compromise. The second thing, notice the road of strife gradually worsens over time. This is verse eight. A little leaven, Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And this means first that Paul's changed the metaphor here. Right? He was talking about a long-distance runner running a race, and now he's talking about bread-making. Now, the way that these two are connected is, is the gradualness of the effect. It, it doesn't take many elbows for a runner to get deterred and veer off course. And it doesn't take a whole lot of leaven to make bread. Just a little bit changes the entire thing. See, for the Galatians, all this doctrinal stuff seemed to be a small issue. I mean, we're just talking about circumcision, right? Relax, relax. 
We're just talking about keeping a few Jewish laws, right? That's all. And Paul says, look, just like it doesn't take a lot of leaven to make bread, the slightest deviation from the truth of the gospel will eventually lead to destruction. And of course, the thing is, you never get to see this happen in real time. Like we, we don't have, as humans, a, a, we don't have a time-lapse perspective on a church's apostasy. You know, I mean, seldom do we ever get to see something decay as it's actually happening. The, the, the closest thing in my mind, the closest example of where that might be the case is, is when I go bowling, okay? Hang with me here. I, I went bowling recently. This is, this is fresh for me. And uh, went bowling with a couple friends, uh, with a few friends a couple weeks ago. And I just, I hit horrible, okay? I, literally, I bowled so badly, I lost respect for myself, Okay. <laughs> Like I thought about it the whole next morning. I'm still working through it, just so you know. Like, and, and you know how bowling works. Like there's, you know, you got 10 frames and you got like two rolls per frame, you know, every frame. And there's a computer, you know, thank the Lord, that like calculates your score, you know. And so you're, you're bowling. Here's the thing, you, you get the first frame, you, you, you know, you roll it, you bowl it down and you might leave like a, a couple pins, you know. Not a big deal because you get another try, right? But then you roll another one, you know, you leave a couple more pins. Yeah, it's still, it's still fine. You're still, you still are knocking down more pins and you're leaving up. But see, if you keep doing that, maybe you gutter one, you know, it happens. And you, you just keep moving along. Next thing you know, your score is, is totaled and you bowled a 77 and you hate yourself. <laughs> and you're like, how did that, what? what? How did, it's math, partly, right, how it happens. But... It's just, it's the gradualness of these things. You, you add these things up and what ends up happening is it, it, always smart, it always starts smaller than it becomes, right? It always starts smaller than what it becomes. And we need to know this about the road of strife. Nobody says, hey, I'm gonna choose the road of strife. Nobody says that. The gradualness. It's gradual, the, 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 it happens over time. That's what we need to know about the road of strife. Number three here, the road of strife must be seen for what it is and thus rejected. And Paul's making it clear in verses 10 to 12 here what the Galatians are up against. He starts here, I, oh, this is good. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Remember, the Galatians have been tempted now to embrace a different view of the gospel than what Paul preached. And as Paul said in chapter one, there's really no such thing. You can't call that a gospel. There are no different views on the gospel. There is the gospel as Paul preached it, or there's no gospel at all. Just to be clear, right? Paul said that, that's where we're at. And in fact, if you remember in chapter one, verses eight and nine, Paul said twice there that if, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received from me, let him be accursed. And that, that, that's an imprecatory statement in the New Testament spoken by the apostle Paul. And in chapter one, you know, Paul, he speaks the, this curse on these false teachers. And it's relevant here in chapter five because he's about to do the same. Okay, so we're seeing in chapter five what we've already seen 
in chapter one. Look at the second part of verse 10. Paul is confident in the Lord that the Galatians, they're gonna, they're gonna get it right. He's confident they're gonna get it right. And he's confident that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So Paul is saying that these false teachers, these troublers, will face the judgment of God. It's true. God will punish false teachers for their deceit, for your deceit. God will punish you. In this case, though, you notice it's singular. Paul here, look at this. He seems to be talking about one person. He says in verse 10 there, whoever he is. And so it may be that, that, that Paul has in mind here the ringleader of these false teachers. We don't actually know. But what's important for us to see, I think, is that Paul speaks differently about the church than he does about the false teacher or teachers. When it's the church, man, Paul is hopeful. He's hopeful. And he, he exhorts them strongly. He admonishes them, but he doesn't give up on them, right? But when he's talking about the false teacher, Paul is already speaking judgment on them, which helps us understand verse 12. Skip to verse 12. Verse 10, Paul has already said that these false teachers will be punished. Now he says in verse 12, quote, I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And that means precisely what you think it means if you think it means castration. Paul is saying that those false teachers who are teaching that circumcision is needed for salvation, they might as well go ahead and keep on cutting. That's what he's saying. This is the second most intense thing that the Apostle Paul says in any of his letters. The most intense thing that Paul has ever said is actually in chapter one of this letter when he said that the false teachers should be accursed, chapter one, verses eight and nine. Because when Paul says the word accursed, what he means by that is eternal damnation. Which means... If we think that Paul is being more severe in chapter 5, verse 12, than he is in chapter 1, verse 9, it's because we don't understand hell. It's because we don't actually understand the gravity of this situation. What's at stake here is in verse 15. Paul is talking about the total destruction of this church. He is talking about the full apostasy of every single one of the Christians who were part of these churches in Galatia. See, the, the, the false teachers were teaching that circumcision is necessary for salvation, which means they were saying that the death of Jesus is not enough. They were teaching that the death of Jesus is just a coupon. They were saying, they were spreading in their false teaching a man-centered false gospel heresy. And Paul says in verse 11, look, if I was preaching that garbage, I would not be persecuted. Because in that case, according to that message, preaching that garbage, 
the offense of the cross has been removed. Now, what does he mean by that? What makes the cross offensive? Well, simply put, what makes the cross offensive is that the cross says you can do nothing to save yourself. Nothing. Nothing. The cross says you are wrong and you're needy. And we don't like to be wrong or needy, right? The, the cross says, hey, you're so sinful and you're, you're so depraved. You're, you're so broken and distorted in your sin that you can't do anything to change it yourself. But the only chance you've got is the death of Jesus Christ in your place. The, the cross says the only way you can be saved is if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is slain for you. And Jewish people, Jewish people consider that to be shameful. Greeks consider that to be foolish. Every human considers that to be offensive. Until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to know that this cross is actually wonderful. Because the cross... This cross where Jesus died for us, this cross is the display of God's love for us. The cross is the place where God, the creator of the universe, says to us sinners, I love you this much. And if he, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see? The cross is the keyhole to all of God's grace toward us. The, the cross is our life. The cross is our boast. The cross of Jesus is everything to us. Everything. I got nothing without the cross, okay? I want you to know that about your pastors. We've got nothing without the cross. None of us have anything without the cross. And the Galatians have to get this because they were headed down the road of strife. They must see this road for what it is and they must reject it. Do not go that way, Paul says. And if we don't go that way, we must go the other way. If we reject the road of strife, we must go down the road of love. And so let's learn a little bit more about the road of love. We've seen the road of strife. Now, what is this road of love? I think the passage here also tells us three things. See the first here in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as opportunity for the flesh. This tells us right away, number one, on this road of love, the road of love does not misuse freedom to indulge the flesh. Verse 13 connects us back to last week's passage in chapter five, verse one, where Paul tells us that Jesus has set us free. Jesus has saved us by his grace through our faith in him, not by our works. 
and he has freed us from sin and the law and the curse and from death, all the things that used to enslave us and to trap us, the power of all those things that used to rule us has been broken. Now we're free. Pastor David said last week, we are freed from all those things and we are freed for loving one another. Verse 13 just extends what we saw last week in verse 6, except here Paul adds the negative warning, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, at the most basic level, the reason Paul gives this warning to not misuse our freedom is because it's possible to misuse our freedom. Like, and, and we get this, right? We know how this goes. You're saved by faith in Jesus. You are not saved by good works. And so then you might think mistakenly, since I'm not saved by good works, I don't have to do any good works. You might think mistakenly, hey, I, I don't have to love others in order to be saved. Why bother? I remember years ago, I had a conversation with a neighbor and he comes from a nominal Catholic background and I was explaining to him, trying to explain to him the meaning of grace. And I said that we can never deserve God's love for us. I start there, we can't deserve God's love. God's grace means that God loves us. Hey, I want you to hear this. This is, I'm, 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 hear this afresh. God's grace to us means that God loves us because he loves us. Not because we've done anything or can do anything ourselves to make him love us. He loves us by his grace. Do you, do you know what he said, my friend? I, I said this to him and he says back to me, oh, so that means I can go out and live and party and do what I want and I'll just ask God to forgive me and he will. What you're saying is, what you mean here is that I can just do or not do whatever I want and God's just gonna love me. You guys, have, you, guys you get what he's saying there? You've heard responses like that before. Maybe you've thought yourself responses like that before. Paul understood that responses like that, behavior like that, he understood that it's, it's possible. People can misunderstand and misuse their freedom to indulge their flesh, but it's only because they don't actually understand grace at all. See, See in this wrong way of thinking, People confuse grace and salvation. Grace is how we are saved. But what is this salvation that grace brings us into? What do we say for? We're saved by grace, but what is this salvation? Well, ultimately, our salvation is that we get God. We belong to God. Grace, grace does not make us a God unto ourselves but grace reconciles us back to the God who created us. And grace fills us with his spirit to be free, forgiven, righteous in Christ. Our salvation is fellowship with God. And in that fellowship, we have the freedom to live for God's glory and to live for others and their good. Right. That brings us to the second thing about this road of love. Number one, on the road of love, we don't misuse our freedom to indulge the flesh. Number two, on the road of love, love serves 
one another. Through love, we serve one another. That's just straight from verse 13. Look at the end of verse 13. Don't, you, don't misuse freedom to indulge the flesh, but verse 13, through love, serve one another. And this is the absolute perfect way to say it. I mean, pa- Paul here, in light of what's going on with the Galatians, he says it this way, I believe, on purpose. Through love, serve one another. So it's not just serve, it's serve through love. And it's not just love, it's through love, serve. Because if you, if you have serving without love, that's just busyness. But if you have love without serving, that's just empty. See, you have to have them both together. There, there is a way to serve others that is not from love, okay? There, there is a way we can kind of go through the motions and it might either be frenzied or it might be humdrum. It, it might be, maybe where there's a lot of activity that we're doing. Maybe we're just, you know, maybe we're bored out of our minds as we do those things. But either way, serving without love means we're doing things, but we've lost touch with the motive behind them, right? Serving without love might mean that we get good at ministry, We just get good, we get slick with ministry, but we've forgotten the heart behind the ministry. Something to be aware of here, something to watch out for. Serving without love is just busyness, but love without serving is empty. Get this, there is a way to only theoretically understand the importance of love. If you read the Bible, you have to at least start here because the Bible has so much to say about love. You can't ignore it, it's there. We can easily see in the Bible that love is important and we can read it in our heads. But if we're not actually putting love into action by serving others in tangible ways, we're missing it. Don't just check the box that love is important. Show love, show love. Don't just agree with the idea of love, but practice love through actions. 1 John 3, 18, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth, right? So it's serve, church, serve through love, and it's through love, serve. This is the road of love. Love and serve belong together. And if we're thinking this way, like if we as men and women are centered on the gospel and we are holding love and serve together, it will change your homes. It will change this church. It will change our city. This is the road of love. This is the road of love. Last thing you see here on the road of love, number three. The road of love embraces the depths of love. Verse 14. Now, I keep saying the word love. I know the word love is overused. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things. It's just such a common word. It doesn't sound profound to us. In fact, we hear it so often. It may even, it may even sound a little trite, you know, a little cliche, right? Okay. I just want to be clear that when the Bible talks about love, it does not mean love in any kind of trite or shallow way. Okay, look at verse 14. 
wrap your head around verse 14. Look at this. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law, y'all. The whole thing, all the laws in the Old Testament about how we should treat one another, all of them. Paul says, it's really quite simple. He says the same thing in Romans 13. Romans 13 verse eight, Paul says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. There you go. The next time you're reading through the Old Testament and you get a little stumped, if you get confused, just flip to this passage, okay? This is like your answer key in the back of the book, all right? Love, it's about love. All of the laws are summed up in this one word, love, and Jesus himself taught us this because Jesus told us the greatest commandment of all, remember, the greatest commandment of all is to love God with everything you are. And the second commandment is like it, love one another, love others. And Jesus said that on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God and love people. Pretty simple, right? Love God and love people. Simple. And yet, we have no idea how deep this is. First, love is our primary calling in relation to God. We are called to love God, which does not mean that we merely have a positive, sentimental disposition toward him. There's a lot of that out here in the world positive, sentimental dispositions toward God. That's not what this means. But we are called to love God as in have a wholehearted, life-encompassing, community-impacted, exclusive commitment to God. See, I think a lot of people, they think they love God because they have some good feelings about him. And Jesus says, love God with every fiber of your being. Every part of who you are, love God and love others. Love other people too. Ultimately, love others as in seek their good in God. Serve others through love so that they would know just a little bit more about God's love for them. And this is now what brings us to the foundation of it all. We've seen the two roads, the road of strife and the road of love. We looked at these roads. And whichever road we take as a church, our church decides. You get that? So we have a choice, church. The road of strife or the road of love. Can, can we just choose the road of love? Can I see a show of hands like say, hey, we're, we're doing, I need everyone to say, we're on the road of love, Okay. We're, choo really, we're choosing the road of love, okay? We are choosing the road of love. All right, good. Now, if we can agree on that, 
This is something we need to get. Foundational to it all. If we're going to truly walk down and keep walking down this road of love, the most important thing is that we know God's love for us. The Apostle John says, we love. We love because he first loved us. Profound statement by John. Profoundly true. We're talking about depths here, okay? I like the way one pastor has put it. He says, a heart that is aloof from God and God's love will grow aloof from others. And in that aloofness, it leads to merciless comparisons and endless fault finding. What, what Paul would say, you're devouring one another. It leads to the road of strife. And therefore, all restoration any renewal we might experience as a community, any renewal we might experience in our love for one another, it begins by going back to God. Prodigals that we are. It begins by going back to God. This is where the, the, the road of love starts. And this is what we have to remind one another about every step along the way. It's that God, remember this, church, God, the creator of the heavens and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh who says, I will be who I will be and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who through the gospel of Jesus Christ has become our Father who knows the very number of hairs on our head, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world, not to be destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation. This God who is so radically for us that nothing can be against us and nothing can come between us. This God loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Do you know that he loves you? And the way that he proves his love for you is at the cross of Jesus which is what we remember as we come down to this table. We come to this table every week to remember the death of Jesus Christ in our place. And as we take the bread and as we take the cup, we are giving Jesus thanks for his death in our place. We eat and we drink remembering that Jesus and his cross, it's our boast. <laughs> It's our life. Jesus and his cross is everything to us. And so this morning, if that is not your story, make it your story. Would that the Holy Spirit open your eyes to see the wonder of the cross of Christ. Embrace Jesus dying for you on the cross. This morning, if you're here, and that is your story, if you do trust in Jesus, if you know this morning that you are loved by God, then I invite you to eat 
and to drink with us. We're going to serve the bread first. We're just going to retain it. Then I'll come back up and we'll eat it all together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.